All right, and welcome to a live episode of Psychology and Stuff from the Midwestern Psychological Association Conference in Chicago, Illinois. Um, I'm Ryan Martin, host of Psychology and Stuff, and I am here with Allie Schramm. How's it going, Allie? I'm very good. How are you? I'm doing well. So um, we are going to be interviewing student researchers uh, from across uh, all sorts of different uh, universities here at, uh, at MPA. Um, most of these are award-winning, uh, maybe all of them actually I are award so. yeah, yeah. Are award-winning uh, posters. They won travel awards and other kinds of awards and things like that. So, um, and uh, so we're going to be interviewing students from various schools uh, here as we go, starting with Ali Shram, who has won one of those travel <laughs> awards for actually two posters. Yes. Um, but you're going to tell us a little bit about one of those. So why don't we go ahead and just start with tell us a little bit about uh, one of those research projects you did? Absolutely. So um, the first research project that I did, uh, I kind of completed by myself, but also with a group of girls um, that we were teaching assistants for Dr. Sanzaki. And we started that project um, basically just to see how students were using their health behaviors and how that would affect their exam grades. And what we found is that um, actually eating breakfast does significantly improve your um, grade and your exam that day. So eat breakfast <laughs> before you take an exam and you'll do significantly better than you would if you did not eat breakfast. Wow. Yes. Okay. Interesting. Yes. So so uh, it's funny because I was literally just talking about this in Abnormal Psych <laughs> yes. yesterday. I should have asked you uh, to, was that yesterday? No, two days ago. Yeah, I, um, I should have asked you uh, to, to, to tell us more about the project because yeah. eating matters. We know eating matters. So yes. what, what got you uh, interested in this project in the first place? I think, well, that semester, it was the fall semester, I was taking Dr. Gurong's health psych class. Um, so I was interested in how the health behaviors that we practice would impact our grades. <laughs> you're fine. I was just checking to see how long we were. Um, so you were you're interested in how that would affect grades? Absolutely. Okay. And then we also found that um, eating breakfast was also correlated with the amount of sleep that you got. So if you got about seven to nine hours of sleep, you would also be more likely to eat breakfast, which is significantly improving your grades so and we are and here's the man itself literally she was talking about your work dr garung so she was or she was talking about your class and how it, it kind of inspired uh the research project that she is here presenting so yeah do you have anything to say about it? you know just walking around the poster sessions already this is only the second section uh, of posters really neat stuff and i hope the listeners say oh yeah i'm going to go to mpa next year because i don't think you can match this level of intellectual stimulation otherwise yeah. And that's why it's, it's super to see so many folks like Ali and even some sophomores here who they can come here two more years, you know, and uh, we have too many students who go who realize too late, you know, and maybe just get in one. MPA and I think if you can get a couple in that would be super and of course as you can see from we've already run into a number of our alumni mm -hmm. uh, who are here it keeps yeah. going well, and I'll also point out too you don't have to be presenting to come yes. that there are a lot of students who come you know their first year maybe they're not presenting research but they come and they get inspired to do some things down the road in so. the words of the uh, psychi president like Ali Shram I believe definitely a high impact activity right, right? so yeah all right well, back, back to work. thank you very much Regan um, now did you come before you were a before you were presenting did you attend no, no okay because somebody somebody I was talking to did and I can't remember who it was but actually came and attended at some point I before think it was maybe Anne Marie okay yes I think it was Anne Marie so I think good I, she was just saying that she was here okay last year. She good 
So your poster, tell me a little, um, as far as how it's going to affect your career goals and things like that, what are some of the things you're taking from this as it, as it leads into your future career? Well, I think just like managing my time was really important, like getting everything together because I, for the mostly of this semester, I worked on everything by myself, mm-hmm. um, which also prepared me for my honors project next yes. year. Awesome. Um, so that was good. And then I also, um, I'm going into industrial organizational psychology. Um, and I think that health behaviors can also impact the workplace. And I think that would be something interesting to maybe do somewhere down the road somewhere okay. in life. Um, but I feel like health behaviors do impact everything that we do. So I found that that was pretty interesting. So yeah, absolutely. I mean, if it affects how you do on an exam, why wouldn't it affect also how you perform on, on your job? So great. Well, thank you so very much. And we are going to be coming at you with posters uh, all day long. So great. Thank you very much, Ali. Absolutely. All right, we are here with Veronica and Katie of Manchester University. Hello. Hi. <laughs> Hi. Why don't you both get in a little bit on okay. the microphone so we can talk about it. So tell me a little bit about the work that you are doing here. Uh, we worked with a couple of our colleagues and our professor, Rusty Colter-Kern, and we wanted to use the Disney Customer Service Integration Matrix on our college campus. And we wanted to see if we can um, determine what was important to college students in terms of customer service on a college campus. That's fascinating. So, I, so as someone who knows nothing about the Disney customer service integration matrix, tell me a little bit about that first, maybe. Okay. So we wanted to see how safety, courtesy, show, and efficiency aligns with their cast setting and process. Disney uses this matrix in their customer service, and they also use it in other organizations as well to improve their customer service. Okay. And so what did you find as far as what are some of the key findings? Maybe, Katie, I'll turn to you. For oh, okay. I was just going to let Veronica talk. That's okay. Um, some of the key findings we did. So we administered a survey to 104 uh, or 107 of our um, students on campus, which is roughly 10% of our population. So from this, um, we uh, obviously we administered the survey and then we analyzed it using a factor analysis, which um, groups the questions on the survey onto similar, um, groups them by similarity. And then um, we found that... Um, our question which measured global satisfaction so the question was based on your service would you recommend this um, place to a uh, family member or a friend basically and um, this loaded on what we determined to be factor one which we call courtesy so from this we can we argue that courtesy is the number one thing that students want from a college um, service like a campus place well that's fine I mean and that certainly grooves with my experience as you know chair of a program that that's ultimately what students are looking for so so um, Veronica back to you tell me a little bit about um, kind of what motivated you to do this research in the first place what inspired you on this yeah so Manchester University has a Jan term program so we take a three-week class in January and this class is actually going to Disney so oh, wow. that was exciting and so our professor wanted to see how we can use this on our college campus and so he asked us to join this research team huh. okay so, so kind of inspired by a trip, which yeah. is cool. You know, we actually at, at GB where I work, there's a, a first year seminar on Disney um, and sort of looking. And they, they don't actually travel there, but there's a first year seminar that explores kind of Disney from all these different perspectives, so, um, which was which is pretty great. All right, so um, I'm going to actually ask this question of both of you. Um, I'll start with you, Katie. But you know, this project and just in general doing this research, how is it? Uh, how has it helped with your career goals and career planning and things like that? 
Well, I started this program or this project when I was a first year. So, um, you know, what really helped was being involved. Like uh, Rusty was, was like a, a super nice. And so he's very involved right off the bat. And if you show interest, your professors will show equal interest, at least at Manchester. But I'm sure it's true for elsewhere as well. So being a first year on this project was really, at first off, intimidating because, you know, I'm working with upperclassmen and a ton of, you know, um, things that I haven't necessarily learned yet. So through this project, I just learned a lot. And, you know, um, going to these conferences and presenting, you know, stuff that you find and stuff that you find really interesting just helps your, your interpersonal skills, your leadership skills, your, like, task motivation. It's just, there's so much that you get out of a research project, and it's just, it's just awesome, like, how much you get from it. <laughs> yeah. How about you? Well, being an upperclassman, I was able to work well on a team and emerge as a leader. And I was able to work from this project from beginning to end, and so I think that'll help me in grad school working on a thesis and stuff like that. So is that the plan next? Or are you off to grad school after this? Grad school. Okay. Great. Congratulations. But, uh, so before we finish up here, first of all, great work. This is a really, really great, interesting project. I like it a lot. Um, second of all, just what do you have any suggestions for kind of future students who might want to want to do either this kind of research or come to MPA that sort of thing? I would just say get involved. Like I said earlier, you know, having that that good base relationship with your professors and saying, "Hey, I have this idea that I think would that we can research, that we can test, and this is how I want to do it." They're going to help you as much as they can, you know, to make sure what you're doing agrees with all of the various psychological guidelines and whatnot. And also, they're just going to facilitate you as much as they can. So just you know, get involved with your professors and find something that interests you to do. And Veronica, final word for you on what what advice you might have. Yeah, I totally agree with Katie. Get involved with your professors, develop those relationships. Um, join research projects as soon as possible, especially if they interest you, because we've been able to work on this project from beginning to end, not just join in the middle. So we've been able to like work on this project and make it our own. Outstanding. Well, great job to both of you. Congratulations. All right. Um, we are with Michelle, Anne Marie, Taylor, and Courtney, um, looking at the cross cultural competence before and after studying abroad. So, Michelle, can you tell us about the research that you're presenting today? Yeah. So, um, way back um, in the beginning of the school year, the International Office of Education reached out to us and said that they were looking for someone to conduct research on if their study abroad programs are actually meeting the cross-cultural competencies that they're supposed to be meeting. Awesome! So we were like, yeah, we can do that for you. <laughs> um, so we conducted a study. Um, we used the survey by Fantini in 2005, um, and we gave that to researchers, um, before, or we gave it to people that were studying abroad um, before they left, and then when we returned, and we also had a control group. Um, and then ultimately, we analyzed that data, and we found a lot of interesting findings. Um, one thing specifically that I thought was super interesting was that beliefs about yourself um, change. So prior to studying abroad, there was a significant difference about your beliefs about yourself before studying abroad, or like in your own culture versus another culture. Oh, okay. And then when you returned, your beliefs about yourself in both cultures were like similar. Okay. So that was very awesome. interesting. That's really interesting. Sounds really like a fun project, actually. <laughs> yeah. Um, so what got you, I mean, you kind of answered this already, but what were you interested the most about the topic? Definitely learning about how studying abroad can improve 
cultural competency skills and the benefits of studying abroad and how how much it can benefit you overall. Yeah, absolutely. And Taylor, you studied abroad, right? Yeah, I did. So how did that like impact your study? Well, it was really interesting because I started this project before I studied oh, okay. abroad. So I got to look at like the research of students before they went, and then we finished it once I got back. So I got to like really apply this to what I had learned and like yeah. my real life. So I really that was really cool. That's awesome. That's really exciting. Where did you go for? I went to South Africa. Okay, that's what I thought. Yep. That's excited with the Human Development Department. Yep. Okay, awesome. Yep. That's exciting. And then Anne Marie. So is there anything else you want people to know about your research project? Well, it just shows that studying abroad is it benefits you in the long run. So highly encourage studying abroad. Yes. It'll impact your life in a positive manner. Absolutely. So do it. Okay, <laughs> awesome. Thank you guys so much for conducting this interview and hanging out with me. Um, congratulations on your research and have a good rest of your day. Thanks, Sally. <laughs> All right, I am here with Will, who has got, uh, Will vote from the University of Wisconsin Green Bay, who's got a poster titled, Examining the Effectiveness of PSAs on Individuals' Perceptions of Autism. How are you doing, Will? Good, how are you? Good, and those of you who are regular listeners, which I hope is all of you know, Will has been on the podcast before, a couple times, what, this will be number four. This is six. Six. Okay, forget it. Yeah, it's, okay. high, it's a high number. So yeah, Will has been on here a couple times. Um, Will, I'm going to have you speak a little closer to the microphone when we get there. Okay. Um, awesome. So, uh, so Will, tell us about your project. Uh, basically, since 1 in 68 children have autism, and the ones who do not have cognitive deficits are integrated into mainstream classrooms with typically developing peers, uh, these students who have autism uh, report negative peer interactions, they are bullied more and report having less friends, and they also report having negative teacher interactions, which either means they are ignored by the teachers or they are identified as the sole cause of the disruption in the classroom. So basically what we want to do is we want to see if we could kind of shift these attitudes, uh, provide more knowledge and help kind of dissolve the stigma that surrounds autism. Uh, so what we had is we had, I don't know why I'm showing you pictures. Uh, we had two groups. Um, yeah, pointing at the pictures <laughs> doesn't not, work here, but that's okay. I'm just letting you know, Will's pointing at a great picture on the poster. Uh, so. so what we want to do is we had two groups. Uh, we had the control group, which they watched a sugar PSA, which basically said like, hey, this is how much sugar is in Mountain Dew, and they like put it out on the table, and it was all gross and disgusting. And then another one was an autism PSA. And the main purpose of this autism PSA, it identified what autism was, uh, what are what are the behaviors that are typically identified with autism, and like the ne the need for the behaviors, like why the child exhibits these behaviors, like if it's a calming technique or they're they're overstimulated and they need to like relax. Uh, so basically, what we found was individuals who watched the autism PSA scored significantly higher on the social attitudes towards autism scale than the individuals who watched the control. Okay. So kind of the future direction for this study is since this was done with college-age students, right. uh, we want to take it out of the colleges and bring it into the classrooms and actually work with the target population. Okay. We want to work with children ages 4 through 8 because, because college-age students, they already have like their ideas kind of solidified right. on what they think autism is, and having just a brief 36-second PSA isn't going to change that. Right. Even though... Uh, PSAs have been shown to be effective. A one-time viewing of a PSA has been shown to effectively change attitudes up to three months. Okay. Uh, wow. Okay. Uh, so what we want to do is we want to go into the classrooms and kind of use this, but tailor it more towards children and actually help change their attitudes since they're the ones who are interacting with the children with autism on a day-to-day -day basis. Outstanding. Very good. So, and this is an award-winning poster, is that correct? Uh, I believe so, yes. Do you know the award? Uh, I think it's like a regional psych... Our MPA 
research award? Psychi research award? Outstanding. That sounds good. That don't sounds tell them good. that I don't know which award. No, yeah, yeah, no, that's all right. That sounds. That, that sounds well. Well, this will come out after it's been oh, given cool. to you. So well, you can't revoke it. Though. Yeah, no, they can't. So that's awesome. Very good. So great stuff. So uh, quick final question: What got you interested in this in the first place? Uh, well, I'm a line therapist. I work for Fox Valley Autism, and I work with children with autism. And I actually worked in schools with the children, and I observed their peer interactions, and I saw, and even interactions with the teachers, and I saw there was definite a definite difference between how the teacher interacted with the typically developing children compared to the child who had autism. And also peers, they were less inclusive of this child because they identified him as different and something da potentially dangerous and something that needs to be avoided, which actually is in line with previous literature. All right, very good. And if you want to hear more from Will about uh, autism, you can actually check out a previous episode with uh, you and uh, Cindy from Fox Valley Autism. So um, you can learn a whole lot more there. Great job, Will. Thank you so much. Congratulations. Thank you. All right, I am here with Brittany from the University of Akron. Brittany, could you tell me a little bit about your research and a little bit about you? Sure. So I am a third-year graduate student at the University of Akron in the Adult Development and Aging program, and I specialize in social cognitive judgments in dyadic relationships. So for our poster here today, I am with one of our undergraduate research assistants, Chris Mignani, and our advisor also helps out with the poster, Jennifer T. Han Stanley. And we are looking at what works and what doesn't, valid cues to deception based on the age and liar of the target. Awesome. That sounds really interesting. So what was the most interesting part of your research that you found? Well, the most interesting thing was that um, people don't really report valid cues. They're not very good at... Um, knowing what works and what doesn't when they're detecting lies in other people. So we had a list of about 15 cues that people reported okay. and only two of them accurately predicted deceit detection. Oh, wow. So I think in general people aren't using good cues which is probably why they're not very good at detecting lies in Absolutely. other people. <laughs> yeah. Could you give me an example of like what types of cues you were asking them about? Yeah, so we just asked after, so they rated videos of a familiar partner lying, a young adult stranger lying, and then an older adult stranger. Okay. And after each video they reported, we just asked them what cues or strategies did you use to help you determine what statements were truths and lies. Um, and some of them that they reported were hesitation, so if they like delayed or looked like they were thinking about their responses, um, facial expressions, the amount of detail that they reported in their statements. Nonverbal behavior, mm -hmm. if they like twitched a lot, or some people reported like head movements. Yeah. I don't know <laughs> what exactly what head movements mean, yeah. but yeah, so those are some of them that they reported. That sounds really interesting. So, what um, got you interested in this particular study? Well, I this is an extension of my thesis work, so I was really interested in deceit detection within couples, mm -hmm. and specifically with younger and older adult couples. So, I think a lot of the um, literature and deceit detection and kind of judgments in general focuses on young adults mm -hmm. so I really wanted to see if older adults with their experience mm -hmm. and life experience relationship experience were better um, and then the cues were added like as a follow-up just okay to see what mm -hmm. they thought they used 
Yeah. Okay. So that's really awesome. what's got me interested. Okay. Yeah, that sounds good. So how do you think this will impact your career goals and after graduate school? Well, I think anytime we've done research, one of the goals of our lab is to really get the findings out. So being able to present it at conferences like MPA or um, GSA, which is the Gerontological Society of America. Mm -hmm. So being able to present at regional and national conferences is a great way to connect with other researchers for collaborations. Hopefully, yeah. job opportunities <laughs> at some point. Absolutely. So I'll be on the job market <laughs> next year. Um, yeah, but I think this project has set in stone my foundation for my future line of research. So it's been a really good opportunity. Good. Well, I'm so glad. Well, thank you so much for meeting with us. And Absolutely. Great job. Thank you. And Thanks. congratulations again. Sounds really thank interesting. You. Absolutely. Nice you. Thank you. You as well. All right. And I am here with Abigail Snow from Baldwin Wallace University. How are you today, Abigail? I'm doing well. Good. Can you introduce yourself to the listeners? Hi, I'm Abigail Snow. I'm a senior at Baldwin Wallace University, and I will be graduating tomorrow. Oh, wow. That is huge. <laughs> Congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. So, and you've got, now I'm going to read the title of your project here, Effects of Stereotype Threat on Female Athletes and Perceived Feminin Femininity. Uh, it's a tough one for me. Um, experiment uh, investigating how athletic identity challenges gender identity. Very interesting. So tell us a little bit about what you what you did and what you found. So uh, when I was looking for something for my senior thesis at Baldwin Wallace, my faculty advisor, Deb Esty, um, had mentioned stereotype threat, which is the idea that when you're a part of a marginalized group mm -hmm. and you think that you're conforming to a stereotype, uh, you tend to negatively handicap yourself or have negative effects on performance. And so I got into the literature and was looking around. There's a lot of literature on women in STEM fields, so math and science fields, with a stereotype of them not performing as well. A lot of uh, literature on race in academic settings, so different races not performing as well. Um, and there's a lot on athletics, but none for female athletes, only male athletes. Oh, really? And so being a female athlete at Baldwin Wallace University, I run track there, okay. um, I was thinking, okay, well, I know there's negative stereotypes right. about my group being a female athlete that I can't do things. There, It's kind of those new campaigns, you know, you throw like a girl and things like that. Right. And so that's kind of where I got the idea and where I headed okay. with it, trying to fill some of those gaps to see if it's even something that, you know, is applicable to that right. group. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, so um, how did you how did you do it? Mm -hmm. What did you find? Uh, so I used this idea called a priming technique. So priming is making something salient to oneself. So I had three groups. I had an athlete group that was primed, so they were made to think about their athletic identity. An athlete group that was not primed, so they were just given a generalized, mm -hmm. here's what's your um, academic major type thing. Okay. And then a non-athlete control group. Okay. And so looking to see when I measured feminine ideologies, so these ideas of traditional feminine norms, mm -hmm. um, how they scored differently and if the priming effect had any, you know, elicited any change between the right. groups. Um, so I expected to see that the athlete without the prime um, and the control group, that they would have similar scores and that the athlete prime group would be different. And that is what I found in okay. several instances. Um, so I know that the priming technique did something. Right. And what is interesting is the feminine ideology scale has four subscales and mm -hmm. two of them, so stereotypic images and activities um, and emotionality, there was no difference. Okay. Um, but in dependency and deference and in caretaking, 
female athletes who were made to think about their athletic identity scored differently than both oh, wow. control groups. Okay. So indicating that there's something going on there. Right. So some examples like dependency and deferences, women should not be competitive. So mm -hmm. they scored higher on ideas like that. So self-handicapping, you know, like right. I, I shouldn't be playing sports, I'm a woman. Okay. Uh, but for caretaking, it was the opposite direction. So went against okay. my hypothesis and um, actually was, so women should be gentle. They actually tended to disagree with that more. So okay. opposite findings. Um, right. And I think it suggests that there is a complex right. interaction between those things going on. Right. Yeah. Interesting. Mm -hmm. So for this, for this study and for future research, what do you think mm -hmm. is next? You know, what, what should happen? Uh, well, I think having a limited sample, so a small group from my university, mm -hmm. um, just from Psych 100, okay. um, it needs to be expanded. I think being a small liberal arts school, it would I'd love right. to have more across all kinds of athletes, so Division One, Division Two. Mm -hmm. um, I think it would also be interesting to look at sport types. So oh, right. you know, is a contact sport eliciting different ideas on gender and femininity than a non-contact sport? I don't know, and then. I didn't use any type of task for performance, right. um, just based on times and kind of, you know, limitations of just what okay. we were able to do um, in the department. But I think seeing if using this priming technique and then mm -hmm. having them do some sort of athletic, mm -hmm. um, you know, activity or something, right. seeing if that physical handicap is there, right. um, because that's a lot of what the research is out there for male athletics and stereotype threat, mm -hmm. is they do some sort of task and they right. see a negative effect. So okay. replicating those types of things, just getting more literature out there right. on this issue, because there seems to be something going on, but there's nothing out there to base it on. Right. So. Interesting. Yeah. Very good. So, um, so you said you graduate tomorrow. First I of do. All, congratulations. Thank you so again. much. But also, what's next for you? What are what are some of your plans? Um, so I have a job lined up. I will be working at the Cleveland Clinic, oh, wow. um, in the Cancer Institute doing research there oh, um, in leukemia. Okay. Yeah. Well, congratulations so on much. that, and congrats on your uh, your great work here. Thank so, you so much. Very good. All right, so I am here with Francine from Fontbon University, who is presenting a study on the effects of physiological stress on idiocentric decision-making. How are you, Francine? I'm doing great, thanks. Um, yeah, I'm really excited to be here. All right, good. So tell me a little bit about yourself. Where, when are, are you a senior, junior? Uh, yeah, I graduated from college um, oh, last did. December, so right oh, now okay. I'm doing research and yeah, um, I was basically preparing for my presentation at MPA and really excited to do this. Okay, great. So tell me a little bit about the study. Right, so I was like, interested in seeing how stress would affect decision making in social dilemma scenarios. Uh -huh. So um, I hypothesized that um, stress participants um, stress using the cold presser task where you have them like immerse their hands in cold water okay. um, they would be stressed out and pick like more selfish decisions in situations where you can either choose to help others at the expense of the self or um, you know help yourself um, over the expense of the community okay um, yeah and unfortunately I didn't find like um, the results that I was like hoping for um, but it was possibly because of like the huge gender differences okay. and I did factor out gender as like a covariate and the results did approach significance. Okay. So yeah, I think future studies, uh, I would probably, you know, work on that a little bit more and hopefully, okay. you know, um, find results that support my hypothesis. Okay, yeah. great. Um, so what are, 
you know, as far as kind of how this has uh, influenced career plans and things yeah. like that, one of the questions I always want our listeners to know is sort of what, in addition to doing the research, what did you get from this experience from doing this study? Um, well, honestly, I think um, this is like my second conference presentation, mm -hmm. and I really enjoyed the whole process of doing the research and the literature review um, and designing the study. So I think it really helps prepare you for graduate school, and right. because I want to go into research uh, as a career, I think this experience really helps, and it really just gives you like a sense of what um, a career as a psychologist would be like. Right. So, yeah, it's okay. great. What, what are the plans now? You said you graduated in December. What are the yeah. plans now? next for you? Um, so I will be applying to graduate school um, okay. for next fall and okay. I hope to go into digital making in social context. Okay. Uh, yeah, so in the meantime I'm working on some research uh, with my professors at Fon Fon. So okay. Yeah, it's going good. All right, so still doing research, mm -hmm. making some plans. Right. So what, what influenced you or made you want to study this in the first place? Where did the idea come from? Well, honestly, I think it's because um, I've always wondered why someone would help others, um, especially when there's like a huge cost to themselves. Right. Um, and I think there's this whole like competing like sense where you have to either pick myself or others, mm -hmm. um, especially when it's like a costly decision when it'll cost you. And why would right. you want to help someone when it you know when it comes to a personal cost? So it really got me thinking um, and how this would apply to situations where. Um, you, where it deals with resources from in like society, right? Um, and yeah, so it really got me interested in decision making in like social context because most of the um, research so far in decision making has been like on uh, risk. Okay. Um, and I thought also um, I would include stress because okay. like society is like everyone's just pretty much stressed out nowadays. Right. Um, so I was wondering how stress would affect um, decision making in right. situations like that. Right. Yeah. Okay. Great. Well, thank you very much and good luck with whatever comes up next. Good luck with uh, applying to graduate school thank and all you. that and the rest of your research. This has been fascinating. So, great. Thank you. Thank you. All right, and we are here with uh, Sarah Davis from Christopher Newport University. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm great. Thank you. So could you tell us a little bit about your research? Okay. So um, the main goal was we were looking to see if people were believing news headlines based on what the headline was saying or okay. what the source was. Okay. Um, so we had people looking at 24 different news headlines, and they were ranging from extremely unbelievable on a scale of negative three to positive three extremely unbelievable to extremely believable um, an unbelievable headline would be something like a monkey saves a baby on a surfboard okay. and then believable would be something like uh, politician votes to increase taxes okay. um, so we had these 24 headlines and we paired them with different news sources so we used four sources we had the Washington Post the National Enquirer, Twitter, and then a control group of no source. Okay. And what we found was people would rate headlines paired with the Washington Post as significantly more believable than any of the other group. And they're the same headlines, they're just labeled differently. Okay, that's very interesting. Yeah. So we had them come back two days later. Okay. We gave them the same, the same 24 headlines and 24 new headlines. So they had a total of 48. None of them had source pairings, so okay. we removed all of that. And we asked them to rate them again on believability, and then we asked them to tell us what they recognized from time one. Um, once we took those source pairings away, the Washington Post 
lost its believability. It okay. became just as unbelievable as the rest of them. Okay. And the National Enquirer actually became more believable oh, wow. once we took that. That's interesting. Away. Um, yeah. So I like that a lot. Um, it was interesting to see. Um, we also found that people were rec- or yeah they were recognizing the unbelievable headlines at time two significantly more than the believable headlines. So um, kind of those outrageous headlines are the ones that stick in your brain, even though they're not the most truthful, they're the ones that you remember. The most memorable. Um, So this study, we were also looking to see if we could prime people to have these effects, um, almost like a carryover effect. So we would have them read either the Washington Post article, the National Enquirer article, a Twitter feed, or no article, um, to see if they would rate the headlines differently just because of that. Um, What we found was people who were reading kind of sensationalized National Enquirer articles, they were recognizing headlines two days later more accurately than people who were reading kind of the believable headline. Um, So this is pretty timely. I think I was super excited. Um, I was in like the checkout line of a Walmart or something and I saw this National Enquirer (laughs) tabloid and I just kind of left because I do all this research about the National Enquirer and how unbelievable it is and people don't trust it and all this stuff. And then this is plastered there about um, Ted Cruz and his father being linked to the JFK assassination. (laughs) And then I just completely forgot about it until it popped up on the actual news like a couple weeks later I was like okay so now it's gaining a little bit of steam and now more people are talking about it and if you search it you find the initial National Enquirer article but you're also finding sources like the Washington Post talking about it CNN Fox News everybody's kind of yeah they're talking about this even though it's been out for weeks in the National Enquirer and no one paid it any mind exactly and I find that true for myself too because if I see an article even about like anything in the National Enquirer I'm gonna say like yeah probably not I move on with probably not but But then if someone else picks it up you're like oh wow CNN posted oh this is is a little bit more believable (laughs) yeah so um, that was pretty interesting yeah, to find. Absolutely. I also thought it was kind of interesting. It was like a little bonus finding. You hear adults complain a lot that mm-hmm. the youth these days are getting all their news from Twitter and stuff. Yeah. We have no results to suggest that yeah. our college population was viewing Twitter as any more truthful than the National Enquirer. That's really interesting. That's so that was hopeful. Yes, that's good. <laughs> People aren't necessarily <laughs> trusting what they see on Twitter. Yes, that's good. Just because it's out there. Yeah, absolutely. So how would this um, study impact your career goals and your research plans later in life? Career goals and research (laughs) plans. Um, (laughs) I'm looking to go into IO psychology, actually. I am too. So So (laughs) it's not the most related thing, but it's definitely interesting because it makes you really aware of where you're getting your news from. Absolutely. Um, And it also makes you really aware of when you're just trusting it because of who is saying Mm -hmm. it. So just because the Washington Post reports it doesn't necessarily mean yeah. it's the end-all, be-all, this exactly. is the truth. Yes. Um, it's going to be a slightly more truthful than National Enquirer just because yes. their process is a little bit different when absolutely. they're reporting. Yes. But yeah. No, it's a good reminder to yes, absolutely. <laughs> look well, into things a little more. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for meeting oh. with us, Sarah. Oh, no I really appreciate it. Great research. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs>
All right, so I am here with Stacy from Beloit College, who is presenting a poster called Are You Hearing Me? Role of Similar and Accurate Perception and Compatibility of Sexual Communication in Monogamous Relationships. How are you doing today, Stacy? I'm doing pretty well. I'm excited Good. to be here. Good. So um, introduce yourself. Tell people a little bit about you. Yeah, so I'm Stacy. I'm a senior at Beloit College. Um, next year I'll be attending a PhD at the University of Michigan, where I'll be continuing my research on sexual communication. Um, just human sexuality in general. Okay. Um, well, so first of all, congratulations on that. That's really exciting. Thank so you. great program, and, and you're gonna sounds like you're gonna do real well there. That's that's wonderful. Um, tell me a little bit about the study that you're presenting here. So I wanted to look at sexual communication in monogamous partners, um, and so specifically, I was looking at sexual communication um, during sex, and so looking at both verbal and nonverbal types of communication styles. And so I wanted to know whether partners had simil similar perceptions of each other's sexual communication, um, whether or not they perceived their sexual communication styles to be similar, and then whether or not they could accurately perceive each other's sexual communication. Okay. Um, and so what we found for that was that while individuals did not have similar sexual communication styles, mm -hmm. they actually perceived their sexual communication styles to be similar. Okay. Um, and furthermore, they didn't accurately describe each other's sexual communication okay. styles, which is interesting to see that while they perceive each other's sexual communication styles, right. they didn't have to be similar or they didn't have to be accurate across right. partner ratings. Okay. And so the second part of my study was looking at whether or not your sexual communication style was effective in getting what you want. So whether or not uh, you perceived your partner to be responding to your sexual communication. Um, and so what I found there was that um, individuals thought that their own sexual communication style was not effective in getting what they wanted for neither males or females. Interesting. But male male participants found that their female partner sexual communication was effective in making them, the males, do something about it. Okay. Um, but we didn't find this effect for the females. Right. So once again, there's like this uh, disjoint finding in which right. um, individuals perceive their communication mm -hmm. to not be effective in getting what they want. Mm -hmm. But male individuals perceive their partner's affection in making them do something. Right. Um, and then finally, um, perceived partner responsiveness to sexual communication was related both to relationship and sexual satisfaction. Okay. Very nice. So, so what got you interested in this in the first place? What, what made you want to study this? So, in fall... So I became interested in the subject when I took a psychology of human sexuality course right. when I studied abroad in Copenhagen, Denmark. Okay, good. Um, and so we learned a lot about human sexuality, but I wanted to know how people could go about fostering healthy sexual relationships. And I want to tie this back to a program I did back at Beloit College where a program called Sustained Dialogue mm -hmm. in which we discuss issues of mostly identity um, and we foster a, a group where we can promote dialogue about certain issues right. and so that was a really effective in facilitating conversations and I wanted to know how I could bring this back to helping couples right. foster their um, foster healthy sexual relationships mm -hmm. by incorporating like dialogue into their sexual okay. repertoires. 
Okay. So the what do you think is kind of the next step for this research? You know, it sounds like you get to do the next step and probably will next year, but what are the what's kind of the next thing we need to people need to look at? So we really need to start looking at the different types of sexual communication styles. Mm-hmm. So my questionnaire focused on verbal and nonverbal mm-hmm. um, sexual communication. But there's research that has since come about that suggests that there are many more different types of right. sexual communication. Um, so looking at individualistic sexual communication with talks, talks about your own needs that you're communicating to your partner and then mutualistic needs okay. um, in which both partners are conversing about like what the next step is. Okay. Um, and then within that there's so much more to be right. found. So. So I, I would imagine this is an area that just hasn't gotten a whole lot of research to yes. date. Is that, is that fair? Or? Yeah, but I think that's fair, especially sexual communication that happens during sex. There's right. a lot of research that happens um, outside of the sexual experience uh, okay. that um, researchers have focused on. So talking about sexual health in relation right. to STIs, talking about your needs or your preferences, so your right. likes and dislikes in, sexual, um, in sex. Okay. Very good. Well, this has really been fascinating. Thank you so very much yeah, for talking you, with me. You bet. Good luck with whatever uh, comes next. Well, and good luck. Uh, you must graduate like in the next couple days, right? Yes, or next Sunday. Outstanding. Well, congratulations on that, Thank too. Thank you. You bet. Thank you for having me. Now, all right, and welcome. We are ending our uh, Midwestern Psychological Association trip here. Um, we're actually in the car, and I am with uh, Jenny. Courtney and Emily, who are three UW-Green Bay psychology students uh, who all three presented at this uh, this conference. And so we are just going to do some sort of final reflections. But before we do, I wanted to tell you a couple things. One, just uh, this is going to be one, our, our last uh, episode of the season. So we may have some special summer episodes that will be coming out, um, but uh, I don't know exactly when. So just more or less be prepared for the fall where we kick things off again. Also, don't forget, follow us on Twitter at Psych and Stuff, on Facebook, Psychology and Stuff, um, or anywhere else. So uh, with that, I want to go ahead and introduce Courtney. Courtney is a UW-Green Bay psychology student who presented some work. Courtney, can you tell us a little bit about uh, the work you presented? Uh, I presented the project with the PhD club with cultural competency before and after studying abroad. And what we found was that if you study abroad, you're more likely to have more patience, more knowledge, a better attitude towards learning about other cultures. You're more open-minded about going to those other countries and getting a really good experience out of it. Oh, and you presented at Posters in the Rotunda about three, four weeks ago, right? I um, did. And it was that the same project or no? It was the same project. So yeah, so that poster has been academic excellence probably. Um, Posted in the rotunda in here, so it's made the rounds. All right, so very good. Emily, uh, you presented a couple posters at this one, right? So can you tell, why don't you pick one of those and kind of describe it for us? Sure, so one of the ones I, I did was I wanted to see if child upbringing, like experiences like um, the peers that they hung around with, the parenting style, the toys they played with, if that influenced their adult perceptions of 
gender roles and their attitudes towards women. And so it was a correlational study. I just had everyone answer the exact same questions and it was all retrospective. So they were just kind of reflecting on their childhood and then um, later took a test um, online with the same survey just to kind of measure um, where they were at with their attitudes towards women and everything. And unfortunately, there were no significant results with that one. Um, but interesting thing is a majority of my participants were very similar. There's very little variance with it. So um, I would definitely hope to do it again and hopefully have participants that um, have more diverse experiences that I can compare. So yeah, because with my participants, everybody had both a brother and a sister. So that was just kind of kind of tricky. Yes. So so yeah. Yeah, and that's one of the things. I mean, uh, you know, I, I came and talked to you at your poster yesterday. Well, it was yesterday, yeah, right? Yes, yeah. <laughs> yesterday. And, um, you know, definitely, like, that was it was a project where I really found myself thinking this would be a, a really good one to replicate to try and get a broader uh, group of participants. Because I think there's it's interesting and there's a lot there that, to yeah, kind of dig exactly. into. So, very good. All right, now Jenny is driving, so we're gonna we're not going to expect too much of her. Yep. Um, <laughs> For safety reasons, we want her hands to focus. Are 10 and two. Yep, she's doing well. So, um, yes, hands are ten and two, eyes on the road. But so, Jenny, if you could give us a, a quick breakdown of your your one one of the studies, because you presented a couple, I think. I presented uh, three different studies, but personally, my study was with Dr. Morocco. I was looking at race um, and stress and coping, and so it looked at this. We had a low sample size of students. So 22 non-white students at UWGB who looked, we then looked at um, coping styles and support from other groups and it the results show that students uh, both non-white and white have increased well-being when uh, high levels of support are given to them. and. After looking at that, you just see they're both significant. So after looking at those, you want a, a way to really increase support for um, non-white students so that it could be high, as high as the white population. So otherwise, the other two posters I presented were on sexuality and stress and then attachment styles and relationships. Very nice. So now as we finish up, because now Jenny, if if memory serves, Jenny, you were at MPA last year. I think you guys, this is your first MPA. Is that right? Oh, you were there last year too. Okay, good. So two of you have been here uh, before. What, just in general, I'm curious to know sort of what, what are your reflections on the, on the conference overall? Things you liked? um, What was a, was a good experience? Is it worth it for future students? What are your thoughts on that? Oh, it was great. I loved it. This was my very first time going, and um, I guess with my expectation of it, because everyone would would talk very highly of, you know, getting to meet a whole bunch of other students that are interested in very similar things and have different research backgrounds and interests, and um, also going to... um, the different symposiums and everything that's going on it's a it's a really good way to kind of network and meet other people and also get an in-depth look of some research that you know it's more than just googling what's going on with certain things you actually really get an in-depth look at it so um, really cool for people who are interested in psychology so I just loved it I loved all that so 
Awesome, that's great. Uh, Jenny, do you have any uh, kind of general thoughts on the conference? Yeah. Things you like, that sort of thing? Yeah, definitely it's like a real world look at what a psychologist really does in the research field. So, like, you're presenting something that you worked really hard on and it gives you like a proud moment to stand there and explain your research to people and they really like it. And then otherwise, like, just like Emily said, you get to go and visit all these different things and there's so much to see that you can't possibly do it all. But you highlight your book and you're like, I want to see this one today. And then at 12 o'clock, I'm going to go here. So it's a good variety of things. You, Courtney? It's definitely a really good experience. I would recommend it. Getting the opportunity to present for two years has been so great. I've learned so much and it's just a really great experience getting to show people all across the country your research that you've been working on. Very good. So I'm going to ask one last question. Other than your own you know, pre- presenting your research, what was sort of a, a, a highlight for you of the of the weekend, or the, not the weekend, of the last two days? So. The keynote speaker is one of the, like, biggest things that Psychi brings to MPA. That was the keynote speaker, in case yes. you didn't hear that. Oh, sorry. That's right. Uh, what was her name? Tracy, Tracy Mann. Tracy Mann. And it was something that I had never even thought of before about dieting and the ways that we diet and stuff, so it was very interesting. It's like and then we all do it together as a, as a class group type thing. So it's like a nice way to end out MPA. And then you're just like, wow, something I never thought of. Right. Courtney, did you have a highlight? Definitely going out and getting to bond with our classmates is definitely a big one. I got to meet some really cool people and made some new friends and it was really cool. Yeah, that is another addition to this that I, I don't think we talk about enough. Like, in addition to all the, the scholarly stuff, it's the, a lot of students have a good time. They go out, they, they you know, uh, get to see Chicago, and so all that makes a difference, too. So. Eat pizza. Eat pizza, <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah, to add on to that, like, um, some of the more, aside from the the strictly academic stuff, there with that um, trivia that they that Kai put on, uh, that was really fun. Um, that it kind of linked together, you know, we're all studying something like pretty much the exact same thing in undergraduate, and so it's very neat to come together and um, and do that. So it was kind of linking academic with being fun and meeting new friends, and right. that along with all the poster sessions, they changed every hour, so right. you got to see brand new stuff, brand new ideas, and different research that people put a lot of time and effort in, right. so yeah. You know, for me, I'm going to pick two things, because I know, I mean, that I really, really liked this. This obviously the first time I've ever done a podcast from a conference before. I really had fun going around and just talking to lots and lots of different students about their work. Um, that part was nice. Um, yep, Jenny just swerved off the road, but we're okay. Uh, I, I, everybody made it. Um, anyways, uh, I really liked that. Um, but I also, I really loved the, the distinguished speaker. I thought Dr. Uh, Dr. Tracy Mann was fabulous. I thought her talk was really fascinating. So I actually found myself taking all sorts of pictures of her PowerPoint slides that I wanted to be able to remember. So that was great. So, um, well, 
this is going to be the end of our special MPA podcast. I do want to thank a couple people. I want to thank Ali Schramm for co-hosting this episode with me. And so uh, that was really pretty great and made things a lot easier and a lot more fun. Um, I also want to thank Kate Farley, who's going to piece together all these different interviews uh, later, our producer. So thank you, Kate. Um, and then once again, I want to thank and thank Kate for everything she does because she's like the greatest producer ever. Uh, and then I also want to thank um, Kimberly Vlees, who put together our fabulous podcast art so as well as all of the students who uh, let me interview them for this episode so that's all i got everybody say goodbye Bye. Bye. Bye.